Well, good morning, everyone. If you brought a Bible this morning, in your Bible, chapter 21 of the book of Matthew. Today is Psalm, or Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week, Passion Week. And so this is Jesus' first day in Jerusalem. So let's stand together in honor of God's word, and we'll pray together after we read through this. So starting at verse 1, chapter 21, titled in my Bible, The Triumphal Entry. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them and brought the donkey and the colt. And they laid their coats on them and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And, verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and he went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Let's pray together. So, Lord, we want to say thank you for things you've already done in our gathering this morning. We want to say thank you for speaking deep into our hearts, Lord. We want to say thank you for pulling back the veil and letting us see just a little bit into the Spirit. Lord, I'm praying this morning that you would do something miraculous in our midst. I'm praying that you would touch hearts and souls and spirits, oh Lord. Let us be changed for having been in your presence, Lord. We want more than just good singing and a lecture. Lord, we want to worship and we want to hear the word of God spoken. And so, Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, minister deeply to your people today, Lord. Let no one leave uh, wishing uh, for more, but let all be satisfied this morning. And Lord, we're going to give you all the glory for everything you're doing. And we pray it this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So several years ago, I had this uncommon privilege of being able to go to the Holy Land. It's been kind of a lifelong dream, and I'm, I, I kind of like archaeology and that sort of thing and history. And 
So when I was going on a sabbatical a number of years ago, I called one of the people that does tours out of our church, Gordon Govier, and, and we set up a tour to go right before I started my sabbatical. And, uh, and we had a wonderful time. It was a 14-day uh, tour in Israel, first the, the southern part of Israel, and then we moved to the northern part and then ended uh, in Jerusalem for three or four days. Uh, there were many memorable points in this trip. One of them was the fortress at Masada, the last great holdout of the Jews before they were finally wiped off the map, so to speak, for 2,000 years. That was their last great holdout, uh, falling about three years after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But when we got to Jerusalem, that had to be my favorite part. I remember sitting on the on the steps leading up to the temple. Now, since then, the passageways into the temple, they've been all closed off over the years, but the steps going up to the temple are still there. I remember so vividly sitting on those steps and having our leader talking to us, open up their Bible, and then talking to us out of the scriptures. And I'm, I'm just thinking, Jesus had to walk on these steps. Now, some of those steps have been replaced, but still, you know, you know, like, Jesus and, and Peter and Paul. I mean, they had to be right by here, right where I'm sitting. They must have walked right by here up to the temple. When we first came into Jerusalem, we had been touring all day. And what I really like about our tour director, the, the one that led us once we got to Israel, uh, his name's uh, Dr. John Delancey. And what I like about him, he's, he's kind of an amateur archaeologist, but he's very smart in the scriptures. He used to be a, a, a pastor and uh, and I also like he's kind of an athlete. He's, he's a go-getter. You know, we were, we'd get up at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning, eat our breakfast at 6, and be on the bus at 7 o'clock. And we would take off, and we would not come back till 6 or 7 at night. And then there was always an optional tour after dinner. You go all this way from Madison to Jerusalem. I tell you what, I went on every optional tour there was. I mean... I'm only there for a short time. I'm like, let's do it. I'll sleep when I get back, you know. So when we arrived in Jerusalem, our, our leader, John, he says, uh, hey, we're going down to the old city if anybody wants to come along. Now, which one of us would say, no, no, I'm, no. So we went down. We were on the southern bank of the Valley of Hennam the Valley of Hennam, which is just right across from the, the old city. And so there's this, there's this big hill. We were in the Hotel Dan, and then you go down this hill into the valley, the Kidron Valley, which you're probably more familiar with, is over here. And we went down in the big, and then back up to the temple. This is the way it works in, in uh, Jerusalem, just up and down, up and down. And uh, when we're going down into the valley, of course, there's a street there now. We're walking on the sidewalk. We're going down in the valley. And there's these people coming out of the valley like they were in some sort of celebration. Like, like one young guy had the, had the Israeli flag on, on his back and was running up the hill with this on his back like this. And it was waving in the wind. And, and uh, uh, you could see couples walking together. Other people coming. It was like, it was, it was like a baseball game or football game or something that they just won, just got out, you know. So we're heading down, and then we're back up the other side, up towards the temple, and finally through the gates, and then we're making our way to the western wall, or the wailing wall. This is where Jews still, still pray today. It's on the outside of the temple mount, but it's, it's right there by the temple mount. So we're making our way to that. As we get closer, you can hear the music playing, like what we would think of as Jewish tunes, you know, like, you know, and... Uh, 
And we're like, what is going on? And we make this, we come around the bend and it's getting, it's getting louder and louder, of course, as we're getting closer. And we make this bend. And then the, our leader had us on a perch where we could oversee the, the wailing wall area, the western wall. We could see it. And on one side, probably the whole area is probably, I would guess, just 100 yards by 100 yards. I mean, it is huge. And on one side was all the men dressed in black. And on the other side was all the women. And, uh, and they were singing and they had they were in arms one another going back and forth back and forth like this the city was in an uproar and when I read this passage this morning that I read to you in verse 10 it talks about the city the the people in the city were stirred and that word stirred means kind of like agitated or moved or something of that sort that there was something going on in the city that stirred them I used to say I'd rather be hated than ignored. I don't know if that's still true. I haven't thought about that a long time. But I think as Christians, it's better to stir something up than to be ignored. You know, I think, I think if Jesus would have came into Jerusalem and the city wouldn't have been stirred, it says it was stirred because of the way he came into the city, which we'll talk about in just a second. And it wouldn't have been stirred, I would have had a few questions. You see, everywhere Jesus went, the place was stirred. It says there were crowds of people that followed him wherever he went because he was healing the sick. Everywhere he went, there was a crowd. Everywhere he went, there was some sort of drama. If it wasn't the, the religious leaders that were on his case, it was other people that were being healed and, and giving praise to God. That was the ministry of Jesus. There was, there was a stirring. And here there's a stirring on on. Palm Sunday, as he enters Jerusalem for the last, not the last time, but, you know, the last week, the New Testament church was very much the same way. When the church started in the book of Acts, we find out right away, right away in the book of Acts, that this is not a popular message. Peter and John are out preaching, and 3,000 get saved in one day, 5,000 get saved in another day, and the, again, the religious leaders are a little upset about the whole thing, so they end up throwing them in jail. Well, when they were in jail, the angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, you guys need to be out preaching, so they release them, and they go out preaching. The next day, they're asked to come before the magistrate, and they say they're not in there. They're out preaching in the temple. Well, go get them. So they go out to the temple and they bring them back in and they say, we told you guys not to preach. And here you are spreading your message all over Jerusalem. In fact, they say this, you have filled Jerusalem with your message. I say, praise God, right? You have filled Jerusalem with your message. And so you know what they did? They beat them. They beat him and said, do not do this anymore. They flogged him and beat him. Now, I don't know how bad it is because the scripture doesn't say... But I've gotten beat a few times, and it's not a pleasure, no matter how much you're getting beat. And then they release them, and guess what they do? They go back to the temple preaching again. That was the New Testament church, and Paul's the same way. When Paul traveled in the Galatian area, Laconium, and those areas there, same thing, just ran into trouble. As soon as he starts preaching the gospel, ran into trouble. Goes across to Macedonia. Lydia gets saved, the first European convert, Lydia. And then there's a woman with divination following after Paul and his party. And Paul just gets, the, and she's yelling at them, you know. She's yelling at him. And Paul finally gets, just gets annoyed with it. In fact, the Bible says, 
and Paul becoming greatly annoyed. That's one of my proof texts for sometimes how I'm feeling. I just go back to that and say, yep, it's all right to be annoyed. And Paul, being greatly annoyed, cast the spirit of divination out of her, and it sent the city into an uproar. And then from there, they go from Philippi to Thessalonica, and it was at Thessalonica that they say of Paul and his party, he said, those who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then there was a great commotion in that city. And then on to Berea, and then finally Corinth, and then back on to Ephesus, where, where you'll remember what happened in Ephesus, that, that they're preaching the gospel, and, and people are getting healed, and, and uh, finally they, finally they, uh, uh, they want to stone Paul and his, his companions because so many people are getting saved, and, and they're burning their books, their, their witches' books and stuff, they're burning those things, and... and uh, they want to they get rid of Paul, and it says the city was in great turmoil, or in some Bibles, great commotion. So I don't want to make too big a deal about this, but it seems to me if the church is being what it should be, there should be a little conflict along the way. It seems, it just seems to me that if the church is doing what it should be doing, that's not going to be just easy skating the whole time, that there's going to be difficulty. There's going to be, there's going to be things that are going to happen. There's going to be a stirring. And I think the more, since you're encouraging me, I'm just going to go on just a little bit farther here. <laughs> I think the more that we are bold and the more that we are following Jesus and the more that we have, have abandoned ourselves to him, the more of that that we'll see. Okay, we're on the same page then, I'm glad. So here's my question this morning. Here we are, Palm Sunday. Jesus is coming into the city, and there's a stirring in the city. I want to give you the reasons this morning from this text, the reasons why there's a stirring in the city, and see if they might not be applicable to us. First of all, there's a stirring in the city because of the way that Jesus entered the city. The way that how Jesus entered the temple that this is how Jesus came in. He sent his disciples ahead while he's still outside the city. And he goes, go to this village over there. There's going to be a donkey and there's going to be a colt. Go get both of them. Bring them here. Probably the mom, I would guess, of the colt. Come and bring them here. And then Jesus mounts the colt, not the older donkey, but the, but the colt, mounts the colt and rides the colt into the city. Well, this might not seem like a big deal, but we know from the Old Testament that the coming Messiah would come into the city riding on a colt. In fact, this Old Testament verse found in Isaiah, this Old Testament verse was universally interpreted to be the Messiah. This would be the Messiah once that person comes riding on a colt. And so here comes Jesus into the city riding on this colt. He's essentially saying, I am the Messiah that was promised from the Old Testament. He's making it known. In fact, I would go a little bit farther that this Jesus seemed to use this time in Jerusalem when, when its numbers were swelled because of the Passover coming up in just a few days. In fact, it said that Jerusalem is a fairly large city in comparison to the people that were there. Some would say as many as 2 million people in the area, of course, all could not fit in the city, but two million people during the time of Passover. It's kind of like the Wisconsin Dells, you know? Population of 3,000. But I read the other day that, that uh, during the summer, four million vacationers 
make their way to the Wisconsin Dells, you know. So it's the same sort of thing. It's during Passover. Everybody's coming from all over Israel to this, to this religious holiday. And the thing is, the, the city is swelled. And here comes Jesus. He might as well have had a bullhorn saying, I am the Messiah riding in. And the whole city is stirred. But it wasn't only Jesus affirming it. It was also the people that were, that were watching, that were, that were there. They were saying, Hosanna in the highest. And, and other Parallel passages talk about uh, calling him the, the son of David and the expected one. All these things affirming that it was clearly the Messiah that was coming. So Jesus is affirming himself, but those around him saying, Hosanna, which means save now and son of David and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, all clearly indicating that they're recognizing him as the Messiah. So the city was stirred First of all, because of this, because of the way that Jesus entered the temple or entered the city. Here's the second reason. The city was stirred by what Jesus did in the temple. So first of all, by the way he entered. Secondly, by what he did in the temple. As soon as Jesus gets to town, he goes to the temple. As soon as he comes to Jerusalem, he heads straight for the temple. And this is what he finds. He finds money changers and he finds dove sellers. Now these people probably had a really good reason to be there. Number one, it makes it so much more convenient for the out-of-towners, you know? If you want to buy a sacrificial dove, you just get it right at the temple. So, very efficient. Here's the second thing. The money changers were there to change whatever currency you had into the temple currency. Because we can't use coins with pictures of emperors and gods and stuff like that. You got to have coinage from the temple. So you got you to gotta turn into coinage from the temple. And then two, you're going to need, you're going to need the right coinage to buy your sacrifice. So you're going to need to, you need to get that changed too. But here's the problem. The people were making a living off the exorbitant amounts that they would charge for the doves and the, the other offerings and for what they would charge to exchange money. And so Jesus comes in and he sees this happening and he immediately turns over the tables and asks them very kindly to leave. <laughs> the problem was not that they were there necessarily. I, I, I kind of think that was probably a good thing that they were there for the most part. But the problem is, is that they let something very honest, maybe something very holy, turn into something that wasn't. And Jesus saw through it. So he overturns the tables to some, this might seem a bit out of character. This might not be the Jesus that you know. The Jesus that you know would never do that. He, he would hug him and say, come on, guys, come on. Can't we talk? Come on, come in, come on, let's group hug. This is another side of char Jesus' character that isn't his dark side. It's just another side. And we don't often see this side of his character, but it doesn't mean he doesn't have it. In fact, there's three times in the Gospels that you see the justice and judgment of Jesus. This is one where he cast the, he cast the uh, money changers and dove sellers out of the temple. There's another time in John chapter 2 where he braids a whip and he goes after the same sort of people with the whip. And it says he was overturning tables and overturning the, pouring out the money that the people had and driving the cattle and the doves and everything else out of the temple. You're like, is this, is this an overreaction? Is this, 
Is this really Jesus? Well, let me give you one more. If we read on in our passage that we read today, just in the next paragraph, Jesus is coming into town the second day. Some say the third day, but he's coming back to town, coming back to Jerusalem. And along the way, he's hungry. It's probably early in the morning. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree and the fig tree doesn't have any figs on it. So what's he do? Curses a fig tree. (laughs) He curses a fig tree and the fig tree withers in front of everybody, you know? And the disciples are like, holy moly, Jesus. I mean, you know, less bark, more wag, you know, just bring it down, you know. But I really think this is the holy nature of God that, that you see the way we understand God's attributes are like this. God, since God is infinite, all his attributes must be infinite. God is not more loving than he is just. God is not more holy than he is loving. He's, all his attributes are infinite. Now, we don't always see them in the same way, but we must realize that's the way it is, or else he would be infinite. It would be illogical. And so since he is an infinite God with these infinite characteristics, we know that his sense of righteousness and his sense of justice are just as strong as his love. I think this cursing of the fig tree is a prophetic a prophetic action of saying what is going to happen to Israel. The casting out of the people out of the temple, yes, he wanted to get them out of there. They were making a business of the religious life. They were making a, a business of it. They were probably in the way because that was the court of the Gentiles. They were probably in the way keeping other people from worshiping God because there's just too many of them. So, so he, he gets them out of there. But more than that, Jesus was confronting the fruitful, fruitlessness of the uh, Jews at this time and the hollowness of their worship. It says in a different place, you draw near to me with your words, but your heart is far from me. And so he's confronting them on this level that, that what you're doing is not, is not worship. This isn't worship. It's something else. And he casts them out and he curses the fig tree, casts them out, casts them out twice. So that's the, that's the second thing. The first thing, the stirring was the way he entered the city. The second thing is what he did. Thank you. Jesus was taking authority. He was declaring his kingship. He was the king of kings, is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that is his rightful place. Not only to exercise authority over the earthly temple, but to exercise authority over this temple. The Bible says clearly, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on to say, you have been bought with a price and you are not your own. You see, the authority of Jesus extends to our very lives. That's his authority extending to our very lives. And so we try by his grace to be as submissive as possible to his, to his kingship, to his rulership, to his authority, to his kingdom. That's what we want. Because we know he has died for us. He has stood in our, he has stood in our place. He has nothing but good for us. And if we get out from underneath his goodness, who knows what's going to happen? I was talking to someone the other day and I can't remember what we were talking about, but I think we were talking about walking away from the Lord or something like that. And after following the Lord for 40 years, guys, I would be scared to death to walk away from the Lord. I'd be scared to death. It'd just be like, I'm not going out there. I'm not going out there by myself. I'm staying right here where it's safe. 
So this was, this was Jesus. That's reason number two. Here's reason number three. The city was stirred by what Jesus said in the temple. So what he did in the temple, but also what he said in the temple. Now, this is what he says in verse 13. The full quote can be found uh, in Isaiah and another portion in Mark, but, but I've just put, I've put the parts together. And so this is, this is the full quote of what Jesus says. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you are making it a robber's den. So the city was stirred by what Jesus said in the temple. My father's house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you are making a robber's den. First of all, he says, my father's house. Again, he's recognizing that God is his father and perhaps declaring his own messiahship at the time. But he's reminding those that are there that this is not your house. This is not your house. This isn't, this isn't uh, someone else's house. This isn't uh, necessarily even my house. This is our father's house. And because it's a father's house, it has to be treated in a particular way. You might think this is more efficient and this is better and this is the easy way to do things. But remember, this is not your house. This isn't your house. This is my father's house, Jesus says. And so I think it's important to realize, first of all, that, that we realize that, that the house that Jesus made, that he has rulership over, is not ours to begin with. It's not ours. It is his. He gives the breath of life. When I say that, I, I mean the temple right here. That he gives us the breath of life. He could take it away like that. Like that. Not to be morbid. But there are people that died this past week that thought they would be in church. This Sunday, not this church necessarily. I don't know of anybody. I'm just, you know, things change just like that. So he starts out by saying, my father's house shall be called a house of prayer. And this is where he begins to tell him, this is what this house is like. This is what this fa my father's house is like. It shall be called a house of prayer. It's interesting to me that Jesus Prayed all the time, even though he was God. He was always going away, taking, the, taking this retreat. They were looking for him. He's off here. He's praying at night. He's, you know, he's always off praying. The church was birthed out of a prayer meeting in Acts chapter 2. It says there that they were continually devoting themselves to prayer. They were continually devoting themselves to prayer. This speaks of the kind of prayer Jesus is talking about. When he says, my house should be called the house of prayer. In my Bible, this one Greek word is translated with two English words. Continually devote. So when, he, when, the, when Luke says that the church was gathered together, continually devoting themselves to prayer, it's the idea that there was something they were continually doing. It's like what Paul says to the Thessalonians, pray continually, but not in the sense of, like you never stop praying. You know, Paul said, I pray night and day for you. So I have to assume that he slept at least at times, you know. So, so I think this idea of praying continually is to have a very lifestyle of prayer. Like a friend of mine who, who loves golfing. I say of him all the time, the guy's golfs all the time. You know, he loves golfing. He's always golfing. Or another friend of mine, every time I go to see him, he, you know, he'd be praying and I'd I would say of him, he prays all the time. I think that was because I was coming. He felt like he had to pray more or something. But 
So first of all, it's that idea of continually doing it. This is, this is something that, that it's a ma- matter of life. But then it's the second word that's even more powerful take to describe the one Greek word is the idea of devotion, that they were devoted to it, that everything else pales into insignificance. Nothing is more important than prayer anymore. This is our mo- This is our highest calling. This is what God has called us to, communion with him. That is what he's called us to. Paul says it to the Romans, be devoted to prayer. Devote yourself to prayer. And we can see this in Acts chapter 6, when the church was still young and the, and the uh, Hellenistic uh, Jews were being overlooked in the daily giving out of bread. And so the, so the disciples came to the, to the um, uh, apostles and they said, uh, they said hey, the, 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 these people are being overlooked in the daily giving out of bread. Now, this could have been the first church split in recorded history. Right here in Acts chapter 6. I mean, this could have been it. This could have been the Hellenistic Jews going one way and the Hebrew Jews going this way. This is it. I've had it. We're being overlooked and it's their fault. This is the leadership's response, if you can believe this. Choose from among yourself other people to do that because we have devoted ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. What? What? I remember one day driving in my car, wintertime, north on Midvale Boulevard, and I had committed that this was my time to pray. This is my time to pray. And I kept, I kept getting interrupted. And so I committed, Lord, this is going to be it. This is going to be my time to pray. I'm never going to, I'm not going to, this is my time and, and I'm not going to let things infringe upon it. So I'm driving up, I'm driving up North Midvale to go to my prayer place. And uh, I get a call from a friend. Hey, Greg, my car won't start. Can you come over and jump me? Uh, uh, um, no. Oh, well, why not? Um, I'm busy right now. Well, what are you doing? I'm, I'm going to be praying. Well, can't you move your prayer to some other time? I, I, I got in trouble with them when I said, no, I'm not, I'm not coming. I made this commitment. I'm, I'm doing it. I got in trouble with them. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm saying that's probably a little over the top a little bit. What I am saying is that God calls us to be devoted to prayer. It's like what he says to Timothy, the young pastor at Ephesus. He talks to him about older widows and younger widows and older men, younger men and, and elders and deacons. He's talking about how one, the, the scripture says there, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. But in chapter two, he says this, first of all, not in order of chronology, but in order of importance, first of all, I urge you to make entreaties and petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men. This, I urge you to do. This is the first thing. This is what you need to be devoted to. Guys, this is what I love about our church. This is a praying church. This is a praying church. I love that about our church. On Tuesday mornings, there's a group of guys that come in at, at six, uh, quarter after six. Nine o'clock, the staff comes in and we pray till about uh, 10.30 or so. Uh, before we even get done, I think there's another group of women that come in at nine o'clock. Later in the afternoon, early evening, there's another group of healing prayer people that come in. Uh, Freedom Ministry used to meet on that Tuesday night. And then on on uh, Tuesday night is our Tuesday night prayer, and we pray through that. We also have revival prayer on Thursday, and we pray before our services, and we're just, we're just a praying church. I think that's the way the Lord wants it. He says, my house should be a house of prayer. 
And then he goes on to say, for all nations. I could just picture Jesus saying, for all nations, all nations, as he spoke to a mostly Jewish crowd. My father's house should be a house of prayer for all nations. He was standing up for you and me. He was speaking of the Gentiles, that this house should be a house where all can enter in. But you are making it a robber's den. This passage is from the book of Jeremiah. This is the full quote from the book of Jeremiah. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have known? Uh, and then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. He says, this is a den of thieves. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, but instead it's a den, a, a den of thieves. And then here's the final part. The city was stirred by who Jesus healed in the temple. The city was stirred by who Jesus healed in the temple. It all begins, it all begins with prayer. It all begins with prayer. And then his house, being a house for all nations, is, is akin to come as you are. Come as you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Gentile or something else. It doesn't matter if you're Black or white, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's for all nations. You come. You come as you are. But here's the last thing that can't be overlooked. That the kingdom of God needs the power of God. The kingdom of God needs the power of God. And the city was stirred because Jesus was healing people. The Bible tells us there were crowds that followed him wherever he went because he was healing the sick. And in the city, the same thing was true. They, they came to him after, he, after he, he, he said these things about the house of prayer. They came to him and he healed the sick. And that changes everything. We see it again and again and again throughout the scriptures. God will give a sign and wonder, and it changes everything. I always think of Sergius Paulus in the book of Acts, where Paul's ministering to Sergius Paulus, and, and, uh, or he's, he's, he's ministering to the proconsul, and, and Sergius Paulus comes along and tries to distract the proconsul. And finally, Paul has enough of it, and he, he speaks to Ser, uh, Sergius Paulus, and he says, he says you're going to be blind for a time. You're going to go about. You're not going to be able to see, and that sort of thing. And immediately, Sergius Paulus is blind. And it says right after that, when the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. You see, it's a sign and a wonder. The church of Jesus Christ needs the power of God if we're going to stir a city, if we're going to stir a nation, if we're going to stir a world. I don't just mean our church. I mean the church of Jesus Christ. We need the power of God amongst us. So a few years ago, I was... I don't know why I was looking this up, but I, I, I wanted to find the, the definition for a bibliophile. You know what a bibliophile is? It sounds kind of creepy, doesn't it? <laughs> bibliophile. It's, it's someone who loves books. Someone who loves books. And uh, they love owning books. They, like, they love having books. They love buying books. They love all of those things. I was interested as I read through the, uh, the definition. It doesn't say anything about reading books, but they like having books, you know. <laughs> So I consider myself a bit of a bibliophile. 
I, I, have, I have books. I like books. I like having the information on my shelf, although I might never, ever crack the cover. I like, I like knowing it's there. So I bought these, this two-volume set. It's probably, it's probably at least that thick. Two-volume set of the book's called Miracles. And it's written by Craig Keener. Craig Keener is a charismatic scholar. He's, he's one of us. You know, he's uh, Gordon Fee. If you know Gordon Fee, has passed on. He was, he was a charismatic scholar and, uh, uh, in years past. And now we seem like we got a new, new head guy, and that's Craig Keener. He is a prolific writer. I mean, he writes like, like you would not believe. I have an introduction on the book of Acts from Craig Keener that's that wide. That's just the introduction, introduction on the book of Acts. He just writes all the time. I see his name everywhere. I'm reading articles and, oh, it's Craig Keener. Or, or, oh, it's Craig Keener. And uh, so he's just, he's just all over the place. So he researched all the miracles down through time and went back and documented all these miracles. He just, just recorded one right after another, one right after another, two, put them in a two-volume set. And he says, there are many, 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 many more miracles than these, but I'm, I'm just putting these in here. I never did open those two books, but thank the Lord, a couple years later came out a condensed version, like it was about that thick. And that one I could read. It was called Miracles Today. And right in the beginning of the book, Craig Keener tells this amazing story. Now, this is what he does. He's a researcher. He's a scholar. So he footnotes everything. So you know, you know he's naming names. He's telling what hospital. He's telling what doctors. He's tell- I mean, he's, he's telling all the details. So if you want to go check this out, you can go check this out. He tells this story of, of uh, Barbara. Barbara, when she was 15 years old, she contracted MS, muscular sclerosis. And it, it ravished her body. I mean, it just, it just, she was in and out of hospitals for 15 years and, or 16 years. And, and when she was at home, she had care. Oftentimes the nurses from the hospital actually go home with her. her the, the care that she needed was so intense. By the time that she was 30 years old, she was, she was in an embryonic position. Most of the time she couldn't stretch out her Hands were curled down and touching her, her wrists and her, her feet were twisted and her, her legs had come up uh, close to her chest and she was just in this embryonic condition. She needed a machine for her to eat. She needed a machine for her to go to the bathroom and she needed a machine to help her breathe. She was on three different machines. And the doctor at one point had told her, it's time to start palliative Palliative care, this, this is coming to an end. It's harder and harder to keep you alive because of infections and things like this. And so you really need to be starting palliative care. And so they, they wanted to send her home, but, but she was just too ill to go home. So it was during this time that friends from her Wesleyan church had, had gave her name to the radio station and asked, her, asked them to pray. And, and people on the air heard about this, so they they started sending her cards. And so she received over 450 cards that people had sent to her, get well soon, those kind of things. But she couldn't read them because of her condition. So her friends, two friends came over and started reading these cards to her about that people had sent. And as they're reading them, a voice from behind her, like her bed was up against the wall. So this is a voice, you know, right behind her. In an authoritative tone, get up and walk. I wish I would have brought the small quote of the doctor that described her condition. I mean, it was, it was tragic, tragic. 
She hears this voice and she tells her two people there, go get my family. Uh, I, I need to get up and walk. And so they're like, what? And she, I just heard a voice say, get up and walk. And uh, the two people go out of the room to get her family. Now, it normally took her family a couple of minutes to get her out of bed. And as, as the two people are off getting her family, uh, she gets impatient. She like hops out of bed onto her flat feet. And she's standing next to the bed and kind of holding on to the bed. But she soon realizes that the muscles in her leg, which after this time would surely be atrophied, were healed as well. And, the, and, the, and she was able to stand on her own. By the time three weeks was up, she was walking like normal. She was off the feeding tube. She was off the, the other tube. And she was off the breathing tube. Three weeks later, three weeks later, she goes back to talk to the doctor. The doctor gets as many doctors in the hospital together as he can. And they talk about her condition. And they talk about what could have happened. And they say to her, we have absolutely no explanation for this, but you are totally healed from MS. That's just, that's just one, of the, one of the stories in, the, in that book, if you're interested. It's called Miracles Today. So this is what we need. If we are going to stir a city... Uh, a nation, a world. We're going to need this. We're going to need to be a house of prayer. We're going to need to be a praying people. God's house must also be a place for all nations where all are welcomed. All are welcome and accepted as they are. And lastly, there must be the power of God in God's house. We must have the power of God in God's house. And if we don't have it, we should be praying for it. We should be praying for his power. Come on, Lord. Come on, do it again like you did before. Do it again in our day, in our time. And you know what? He will.